0: Hi, good morning. It's great to be with you all. Uh, Sorry to our visitor making you feel awkward, but if you're new or visiting, welcome. Welcome again. Uh, Thank you for joining us. It's a blessing that you're here. Um, Well, my name is Joshua, and I'll be bringing you the word today. Well, we're in a series in the book of Esther right now, thinking about what it means to be faithful in difficult times through wisdom and meekness. And last week, we saw the tension build up in the story. Uh, Mordecai finds out that Haman, uh, out of anger, has sent out a decree to annihilate all the Jews. And he tears his clothes and puts on sackcloth and ashes, which is a sign of lament, and starts crying in the city square. Now, of course, Esther doesn't know why he's so upset at first, but after some exchanges, she realizes what's happened and decides to go to the king to try to protect her people, uh, even though she might be killed in the process. And Pastor Norman broke down that passage for us, challenging us to think through what are the possibilities of discipleship for us at this time? Uh, Where is God moving us to step up And obey and as we grow into that obedience we experience deep change through Christ forming us well that's where we ended but the tension in the story is still high so let me read today's text for us and then we'll get into it together Esther chapter 5 on the third day Esther put on her royal robes and stood in the inner court of the king's palace in front of the king's quarters while the king was sitting on his royal throne inside the throne room opposite the entrance to the palace. And when the king saw Queen Esther standing in the court, she won favor in his sight and he held out to Esther the golden scepter that was in his hand. Then Esther approached and touched the tip of the scepter And the king said to her, what is it, Queen Esther? What is your request? It shall be given to you, even to the half of my kingdom. And Esther said, if it please the king, let the king and Haman come today to a feast that I have prepared for the king. Then the king said, bring Haman quickly so that we may do as Esther has asked. So the king and Haman came to the feast that Esther had prepared. And as they were drinking wine after the feast, The king said to Esther, what is your wish? It shall be granted to you. And what is your request? Even to the half of my kingdom, it shall be fulfilled. Then Esther answered, my wish and my request is, if I have found favor in the sight of the king, and if it pleases the king to grant my wish and fulfill my request, let the king and Haman come to the feast that I will prepare for them. And tomorrow I will do as the king has said. And Haman went out that day joyful and glad of heart. But when Haman saw Mordecai in the king's gate, that he neither rose nor trembled before him, he was filled with wrath against Mordecai. Nevertheless, Haman restrained himself and went home, and he sent and brought his friends and his wife Zeresh. And Haman recounted to them, the splendor of his riches, the number of his sons, all the promotions with which the king had honored him and how he had advanced him above the officials and the servants of the king. Then Haman said, Even Queen Esther let no one but me come to come with the king to the feast she prepared. And tomorrow also I am invited by her together with the king. Yet all this is worth nothing to me, so long as I see Mordecai the Jew sitting at the king's gate. Then his wife Zeresh and all his friends said to him, Let a gallows fifty cubits high be made, and in the morning tell the king to have Mordecai hanged upon it. Then go joyfully with the king to the feast. This idea pleased Haman, and he had the gallows made. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Dear God, your word is a lamp unto our feet and a light to our path. Give us a bigger vision of you, and help us to love you so we can love ourselves and others too. In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, One of my favorite scenes in a DC movie is the beginning of Man of Steel, uh, 2013, when a young Clark Kent is in a car with his parents in Kansas, and a tornado comes rushing down the hills, destroying everything in its path. It's chaotic. All the cars stop on the highway and the people start panicking, running in all directions to look for shelter. And Jonathan Kent, Clark's father, gets out of his car, uh, brings his family to safety and starts directing people out of harm's way, helping the vulnerable out of their cars and carrying children to their parents. And at one point, as he's helping somebody's dog out of a seat, a car smashes against him and his leg gets stuck and he gets injured. He's not able to outrun the tornado. Now his son, Clark, is watching anxiously because he knows he can save his father in that moment with his superpowers, uh, so he gets ready to run in. But his father looks into his eyes from a distance, and he puts his hand up and shakes his head to stop his son. Uh, the music pauses, and he smiles with pride for Clark, and then he gets taken up by the tornado. Uh, See, in that moment, he was teaching his son wise self-awareness. If Clark were to reveal his superpowers there, he would have been thrust into the public eye. And his father knew his son was not mature or emotionally ready enough to handle that burden just yet. In our text, we see Esther step into an uncertain, unsafe, and potentially life-threatening space. She's about to face the king but the reason she's able to move through that space in a measured and calculated way is that she had what I wanna call today godly self-assurance. Here's our main point for the sermon. Godly self-assurance nourishes us to fight for other people's assurance. Uh, Godly self-assurance nourishes us to fight for other people's assurance. What is godly assurance? Three points to break that down. Number one, assurance in the unknown. Number two, assurance in the known. And number three, assurance in being known. First, assurance in the unknown. So verse one, it says, Esther put on her royal robes and stood in the inner court of the king's palace. She's getting ready to face him. That phrase, putting on her robes, is an intentional literary detail. Um, see, see, in one sense, it's a contrast to Mordecai, who tears his clothes. Uh, he's hopeless, but she takes initiative and puts on her robes to prepare for the enemy. It's almost like she's putting on armor. And that detail is showing us, the reader, uh, that Esther has developed this sense of confidence and strength in her position. Um, of course, she's afraid. Things are up in the air and she could die. Uh, But still she gears up for whatever might come. Now, where does this assurance in the unknown come from for Esther? Uh, Well, the answer to that is not totally clear in our text, but if we go back to last week's text, just for a second here, at the end of chapter 4, when Esther decides that she would face the king, what does she ask her people to do? Fast and pray with me. Uh, As Pastor Norman reminded us, it's this dependence on her people and on her God. Uh, See, that's the fundamental starting point for Esther's self-assurance in the unknown. She depends on her people and on her God. Uh, See, in other words, first, her self-assurance doesn't come from herself. It comes from sources beyond. Uh, Let's pause there. Uh, Family of God, there are a lot of unknown areas in our life our insecurities, careers, relationships, our church. Uh, the late David Powlison, who was a counselor, he talked to so many different people throughout his ministry, and he said, the most important things in life and death are things we can't control. Uh, you, you might be in a place right now where you feel like the circumstances are so frustrating because you don't know what's going to happen, how your family will do this year, uh, where your job will take you. Uh, if you're going to be financially all right. These are all real questions that we wrestle with. Um, but what I hope we can remember is that in order for us to feel self-assured in these times, our confidence has to start outside ourselves. Um, if we're going to survive long term, we have to depend deeply on something other than planning, uh, competence, or luck, uh, See, see, fasting and praying with her people to God was not just a formality for Esther. Uh, it was a necessity in her life to start there. Um, Paul in the New Testament often uses this language of putting on the life of Christ, right? In Colossians 3, it says, put on then, as God's chosen ones, your new identity. Uh, Ephesians 6 says, put on the armor of God. And it's almost like that image of Esther putting on her royal robes in preparation. Uh, But the reason she was able to put on those robes with such confidence was that she had already put on the practices of prayer and fasting and community to God beforehand. Uh, uh, So church, let me ask us this. What practices can we put on today in our lives to strengthen our dependence on God and others? How can we put disciplines in our lives to keep building that foundation so that when we do face the unknown, we can still have that support in our hearts. There's a famous story of Charles Spurgeon, the 19th century preacher. Uh, His church, uh, the New Park Street Church in London, was growing. Um, At one point it held around 5,000 people. Uh, There was no fancy technology, no sound system, it was just regular. Well, one day, a group of young pastors came to visit him. They were impressed by the sanctuary, the sermon, people worshiping passionately. Um, and after being blessed, they were about to leave, and Spurgeon asked them, would you like to see the boiler room? Um, and they declined. They were not really interested in that kind of tour. Uh, but he insisted, so they followed him down to the basement, and Spurgeon opened a the door there to reveal a hundred people praying together. He said, this is our boiler room. And the story is that whenever somebody asked Spurgeon about the secret to his ministry in difficult times, he answered, my people pray for me. Sometimes even if we don't feel the assurance of God, the regular practices can develop that sense in us. It softens our hearts to his voice and other people's voice in our lives. That's why Esther needed to start with that, fast and pray with me. My prayer for King's Cross is that we would be able to set patterns in our lives. Uh, Whether it's in scripture readings, prayer groups, it's just that continuous reminder of God saying to us, I'm wiser than you, and I'm with you. I love you, you're my child. It's like that balm being massaged in our souls um, so that we could put that royal robe of confidence on even in trial. Um, Albert and Suji have a beautiful cat named Mimi, and we've had the privilege of watching her a few times. And and if you know Mimi, she's very shy. As soon as she enters our home, it's unfamiliar, so she runs straight under our couch. And for the first day or two, she stays there. Uh, we, We put out our food on the schedule, clean the litter box, speak gently, but she doesn't respond. Um, Then finally, she would creep out, hyper-conscious, and start nibbling on her food because she's hungry, and then go back under the couch. But but that's progress. And throughout the days, we try to make her environment safe. We give her treats. We pet her. And finally, when she realizes that she's not in danger, she warms up and becomes extremely affectionate. And then uh, Albert comes to pick her up, and we start missing her again. Uh, we're, We're all like Mimi sometimes hyper-conscious of the unknown and scared, which is understandable, um, especially if we have a lot of wounds in us. Uh, But it's that consistent nearness of God, that effort of God to reach out to you in his word and people that develops that basis in our hearts of assurance um, in the unknown for ourselves and each other. Would you think about that? And next is the assurance in the known. Uh, So, Esther waits in her royal robes in the courts of the king, and the story takes a turn. Uh, The king, instead of getting angry, actually gets overjoyed. Uh, He holds out his golden scepter, which is the sign of approval, and she touches the tip of it. And he asks her, Queen Esther, what do you need? I'll give you anything, even half my kingdom. He's eager to please. and so she says, "If it please the king, let, let the King and Haman come to the feast I've prepared, so they come to the feast." And she says, what, "What do you need?" And he says, you "Come to another feast that I'll prepare for you tomorrow." So, so, so now we're no longer in a completely unknown situation. The king didn't react as dangerously as we thought, um, And in a sense, Esther has the upper hand now. Uh, but how does she maneuver this? She's shrewd and focused. See, if you notice, her, her ultimate request is for the king to protect the Jews, but she doesn't divulge that yet. Um, in fact, it's almost like she's teasing the king. Uh, she sees how eager he is to please, and so knowing him well, she makes him drunk and curious to keep that upper hand over him. Uh, some commentators say that in verse seven, uh, it seems like she's cutting herself off. Uh, the ESV doesn't translate it this way, but, but it's almost like she's saying, my wish and my request is, actually, let me invite you to a second feast. She, she's stringing him along, right? So, so she's aware of how precarious the situation is still, but she also knows how to strategize with the advantage she does have to expose her enemy at the right time. Of course, in our life, there are gonna be unknowns, but there are also knowns And how we act strategically depends on three major knowns that we can think about, three knowns. First, it's knowing God. Um, Esther acted in the way she did because she knew she was part of something greater than herself. She had to engage all her faculties because she knew she was part of a greater people. Think about the gifts you have in your life right now, the resources, the good relationships and opportunities. Whatever good things you have in this season are given to you by God. Are you conscious of that? See, all we have is grace. We don't just get stuff because we're smart or capable. Things are given to us. Everything we have is given to us, and he can take it away. And and as we remember that everything we have is actually a gift from God, they become more precious because we know that he's entrusted these things to us for a greater gospel purpose. Search for how you might imitate the one who made you um, with what you have. So that's the first no, knowing God. Second is knowing ourselves. Norman and I used to talk about the uh, Enneagram personality test. Uh, There's also Strength Finder, Myers-Briggs, Horoscopes, BuzzFeed, which Pokemon are you? Um... All kinds of ways people examine uh, what makes them unique. See, each of us in this room is a combination of scars, networks, personalities, and family histories that make us so distinct from each other. We always tell our youth students, there's nobody in the world like you. There's no other person that reflects the image of God like you do. So it doesn't make sense to try to be somebody else. 50 Cent said, there's always something new when somebody decides to be themselves because they offer something nobody else could be. Esther knew her unique situation as a Jew, as a queen in Persia, as a favorite of the king, as a niece of Mordecai, she knew there were things that she could do that others could not. Each of you in King's Cross is the image of God, and we need you as you. Brendan Yee can do things I can never do, but Hemian can do things Brendan can never do. That's the body of Christ, filling in for each other, being unified and diverse together. Know yourself for us. Critique and celebrate yourself for us. And the third known is knowing others. Um, Look how well Esther was able to learn about people's hearts. See, earlier in chapter 4, she tries to clothe Mordecai, and now she's standing up for him. That's empathy. Here she uses the king's extravagance and Haman's pride against them. That's exposure. Uh, See, this is a picture of somebody who's not afraid to listen to people, but also challenge the evil in people out of love. She's observant. Some of us are natural listeners, some natural challengers, but the point is to be deep spiritual observers so that we can listen and challenge, not for the sake of being better than each other, or for the sake of being better, period, in love. That's why we try to get to know each other. In the civil rights era in American history, a lot of activists fought racism with a nonviolent approach. Um, and people think that was some kind of passive and nice method of resistance, but it was actually a deep, often religious philosophy of convictions, even in the face of evil. Uh, See, see, these activists were, were individuals who really had to work to know God, know themselves, and know other people because they needed to hold on to those knowns, those convictions, as they fought against injustices. That was their strategy, to hold on to the knowns and their convictions. Listen to what Martin Luther King said during the fight against bus segregation in Alabama. He says, as you press on, be sure to move with dignity and discipline using only the weapon of love. I still believe that standing up for the truth of God is the greatest thing in the world. I still believe that love is the most durable power in the world. King's Cross, how are you directing and capitalizing on the knowns, the truths in your life toward growth in this season? So that's assurance in the known. Lastly, the shortest assurance in being known. Look at Haman in verse 9. He's joyful. He's so proud that he's been invited to this private circle uh, with the king and Esther. But as soon as he sees that Mordecai is not giving him respect, he goes straight to anger again, filled with wrath. Uh, But he restrains himself and seeks comfort in his friends and his wife, flaunting his riches and promotions to them. But then he turns again and says, this is all worth nothing to me if Mordecai is still alive. So his friends and his wife say, why don't you build a huge gallows to hang him and humiliate him? Oh, that sounds good. And he gets joyful again. Uh, see, this is somebody who's being tossed to and fro like a scrap in the wind. He's happy, then he's mad. Happy and mad. Oh, I can humiliate, oh, I can humiliate him? Oh, that makes me happy. He's so deeply insecure and fragile. It's in contrast to Esther. Esther holds back in the palace because she's being strategic. Haman holds back against Mordecai because he needs to run to his friends for some shallow affirmation. We always say that the author of Esther is funny. And this is a comical scene. It's a little confusing on purpose. See, he's already ordered the death of all the Jews. But he's concerned that Mordecai is not dead. He's proclaimed that man should be the head of the household, but he needs his wife to lead him. Of course, that's not a terrible thing, it's just inconsistent. He's all about power, but his greatest pride is that Esther, the Jew, invited him to the feast. He's so obsessed with being known that in the end he gets the opposite, weakness, because nobody truly knows him or tends to his wounds. Family of God, look around you. Uh, Who are the people who know and affirm you for who you are, even in your failures? Find them and let them speak truth into you and be the same for them. Uh, As C.S. Lewis said, it's possible to lock up your heart and harden yourself. Become the toughest New Yorker out there, thick-skinned and no-nonsense. But when your heart is unbreakably strong, it also becomes unknowable and irredeemable. Uh, That's not self-assurance. To love is to be vulnerable. Uh, To love is to show somebody you trust your hurts and for somebody to do the same for you and even if it's clumsy. uh, We make mistakes with each other sometimes but we grow to embrace each other in Christ. That's what it means to be deeply cared for as a human being. Uh, Remember the Chris Tomlin song, you see the depths of my heart and you love me the same. Uh, that's, that's what we need to hear from each other. But of course, uh, it's not easy. So where do we find help? Church, if you take anything away today, look at the cross. Oh. Jesus was omniscient. He was fully aware of himself as God. But he was also aware that he was the only one who could save you and me. And just like Esther He faced death for his people, but he didn't get favor in the end like she did. He received judgment. He received hate. And while he was on the cross, people questioning his identity, the world was turning against him, but he focused his attention on the thief next to him. A thief who had extremely broken assurance like you and me sometimes. And he said over this thief with confidence, today you will be with me in paradise. His overwhelming love for this broken person, his church and his bride, conquered even the despair on the cross. That Jesus is for you. That Jesus will walk with you in your growth for a godly assurance and not only for yourself, but so that he could bring liberation and love to the people around you. That's why he went through all that, to unite himself to you. Will you lean on him? Will you spend time with him in the unknowns, in the knowns, and in his tender knowledge of you, so that you might be a blessing to somebody else.